A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Welcome, Yehuda everyone, Geber. to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, part two of the Jewish Music Revolution, has been generously sponsored in honor of Ali Scharf and his large impact on Jewish music over the decades, and it is dedicated by his favorite sons-in-law. So I guess uh, those favorite sons-in-law know who they are. Um, I just want to, we're going into part two of this very popular um, mini-series of, on Jewish music and the Jewish music uh, revolution um, and the development of Jewish music over the 20th century. So before I even get into part two, I want to get an enormous amount of feedback from part one. I'm just going to choose a few uh, a few letters to read. It's, one listener actually gave me a nice summary of, of the history of hockey uh, and the NHL, which put Gretz, Wayne Gretzky into context, and he pointed out that he's not as great as people make him out to be. I'm not going to read that whole uh, letter because it's less rel- directly relevant to the Jewish music scene but it was important uh, to know that history as well. Here's another letter from someone who's you know, big in the Jewish music scene today and quite knowledgeable about music and many other things you know, in, in general. He's sent me quite a few letters in the past, so I'll read his letter as well. Ding's first name is David Nachman, hence the nickname Ding. His last name is Golding. I think, parenthetically, I think I knew that. I just, its name slipped my mind when I said it on the episode. Okay, going back to his letter. We know that the objections to Reb Shlema were not only that he left Lakewood, but we'll let you go on that, though. If you do more on this topic, you must give mention to someone who is definitely a game-changer in the sound of Jewish music, and that is none other than the great Yisrael Lamb. His arrangements introduced us to a fresh, modern, yet batamta sound. When you want to mention uh, a Yankel Talmud, well-known niggin, I would certainly say, instead of Shira Malis, the well-known Loi Sevaishi that everyone sings. You did mention Loi Sevaishi by Bensi and Schenker. I hope you didn't mean that one. And by the way, I'm almost sure that the Shishanas Yaakov is not Schenker's own composition, but rather of Majitz. And here's a cute Yankel Talmud story. He had a great sense of humor and once asked someone in Yiddish, what does it mean that I hear people in the street saying, Beethoven, Bach, and Talmud? A.B. Rottenberg's song is a work of genius, 
but I'm sure that you know where he got the idea from. It's from a Billy Joel song, very similar. The first Jewish music album was released by Chafetz Chaim Yeshiva, singing Avinu of Harachaman, among other old nigunim. End of letter. Very interesting. A lot of good tidbits there and a funny story with Yankel Talmud. And mentioning Uncle Talmud, I got another uh, feedback from another very knowledgeable uh, listener who t- said a funny story. Um, also, I think these stories by Uncle Talmud are more about how he was a Polish Gerachosid more than he was a, a pioneer in Jewish music. Uh, someone once confronted Uncle Talmud outside of Ger Shabbos morning after davening, and he told him that the Kel Adain this morning wasn't up to par. So he shrugged his shoulders and he said, okay, so go shmadzich. In other words, if you don't like it, then you could go ahead and become, go be, convert to Christianity if that's, uh, if your issue is with my keladain. Uh, next letter, ba 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 ba. Another famous classic of Bensin Shanker is his Mizmar Ledavid. Bensin Shanker had an awesome story when he was on vacation in Switzerland. Uh, and an old survivor completely destroyed his famous Mizmer Ledavid. Rabinsian tried doing some damage control and got berated that he was some young American who does not know how to sing it the way he heard it from his father in the Alta Hain. Rabinsian came home laughing with that tale. That's the end of that letter. And it illustrates what I was saying in part one about how some of his songs became such classics that, that people thought they were really much older than, uh, than they really were. And his Shreshanis Yaakov was not his own composition, it was Majitz, but that also illustrates the, illustrate, excuse me, illustrates the point that I was making, that he and Majitz were almost uh, synonymous. Okay, that's enough for letters this time, maybe we'll get to more next time. By the way, you should check out Mishpacha magazine this week, the For the Record, you should check out the whole magazine, but the, definitely the For the Record column of uh, Davi Safir and myself. It's a pretty easy-to-find column this week because we're pretty much the only one that is a non-political article in this week's magazine. Um, it's Ramesha Soloveitchik's 80th Yard Sites. we got a nice two-pager about Ramesha Soloveitchik and his influence and his life, and it's very, very in- interesting about someone who there's definitely not enough written about, so you definitely want to check it out. By the way, in general, when I say magazine, and I refer to an article there, I obviously mean Mishpacha magazine. Some listener asked me when I said the magazine, which one I was uh, referring to. So the only other magazine in my house is the Journal of the Israel Historical Society, and I definitely would not punish you by referring you to that. So I I mean the uh, Mishpacha magazine. So getting to part two, we left off in part one in the 1960s. Uh, Ended off by mentioning Archadash Yassi Taiv, later famously Country Yassi, and then Shmelka Brazil, now known as Rabbi Shmuel Brazil. He's a Rosh Hashiva today. Um, so they are friends at the emerging Shar Yashiv of Reb Shleim Freifeld. There are a couple of others involved as well. I forget their names. But uh, Country Yassi would come out to make a huge long-term impact on the Jewish music scene with with his several uh, albums of parodies of non-Jewish songs and later Kivi and Tuki, which which I hadn't listened to for 20 years, but now I listen to all day and night because my kids are are obsessed with it. And then he had his country SC radio show, so it's an enduring uh, legacy uh, um, uh, of, of country SC. 
And of course, uh, Shul Brazil at the time with our Chadash, so Shmelka's Nigin became the classic wedding song of the 1970s. Much like when I was growing up in the 90s, the Dago Minayan was the classic wedding song at the yeshivish weddings. Um, so, so the Shmelka's Nigin was a, a, a decade or two decades earlier. Um, and of course, Bilvavi uh, is the is an all time classic. So that was um, that, and much more was Ar Chadash's uh, influence on on the, the Jewish music scene. And of course, this would not be the last time the world would hear about Shmuel Brazil. But we'll have to get back to Regesh and his collaboration with Abish Brat when we get to the 1970s. Also, began to mention Pirche in the part one. Jep, Jep, and Pirche. Um, the two go together, kind of. And they're in 1966, they start off. Um, and they, uh, it's, an, it's an initiative of, of Agudis Yisrael. It's involved in Agudis Yisrael, the youth, youth groups of Agudis Yisrael, Pirche, the people who were involved in Pirche, Josh Silberman's, Ellie Teitelbaum. And uh, Silberman's tapped a young uh, Ellie Scharf to compose songs for the early Pirche albums which would be the beginning of a lucrative career for Scharf in the Jewish music industry as a composer, a songwriter, a singer. He composed, among others, the Ish Chassid classic song, and later he composed for Dveikas as well, and later on with Rivi Schwebel and Dov Levine, which also we'll have to get back to when we get to the appropriate decade. Josh Silberman's warned Ali Scharf to keep the songs Jewish, and I want to use that quote of Silberman's as a, again, to give it a historical context. There seems to have always been this internal tension in Jewish music about the amount of influence uh, that non-Jewish music is allowed to have on the Jewish music scene. As it developed, and it goes back and forth, and it ranges from straight-up knockoffs of songs, full albums of knockoffs. I mentioned Country Yossi later on in the 1980s. You'll have... Gershon Varoba and variations, and uh, continues till today. You have the uh, contemporary Jewish music scene, you have the Maccabees, you have others, but but there's there's um, there's influence that is seen in the 1960s, uh, where we're talking about the decade that we're talking about in of instrument usage, of styles, different arrangements, of uh, sound. Um, in, in the compositions that come out, and there is always this tension. How much are we striving for purist uh, Hasidic music, or are we allowing an influence of the outside uh, non-Jewish music? And very often it's not deliberate, it's just that's the prevalent uh, sound that's uh, that people are used to, and, and it influences the compositions as well. So that's uh, that's something that that uh, comes up already in the 1960s and and uh, and uh, continues till this very day. Now, Pirche and Jep were used for fundraising for the outreach programs of Jep, um, and it brought the camp, the camp, the Catskill camps uh, scene to outreach to the less affiliated Jewish youth, and it brings together the young Heimische crowd of New York um, um, uh, and and the and the it's a Young, small uh, Jewish music world at the time, and uh, it's in the embryonic stages still of Jewish music, the late sixties and early seventies, and it brings it together to Kiruv to outreach, um, to produce some incredible uh, albums during that time. I also mentioned that the end of last uh, part one just started to mention 
the London School of Jewish Song, Yigal Tzalek, who um, was one of the few, uh, one of the one of the few, uh, not you know, there, most of the Jewish music scene was in the United States and to a lesser extent in Israel. One of the few um, manifestations or products was Yigal Tzalek, which was neither, which was uh, in England. He starts in 1970. He also has the credit of discovering Yossi Green, who was a learning in a yeshiva in England at the time. Um, like I mentioned last time, I seem to remember, I couldn't find the song again. I looked for it. I think he had a, a, a song that was related to Leningrad or the Soviet Union. So it was one of the first songs that had political overtones, which would later become popular, believe it or not, in Jewish music. You had the Miami Boys Choir. The first album was about victory at Entebbe. Um, and then he had Mr. Carter. Um, it was also one of the early Miami Boys Choir. MBD would have on Soviet Jewry. Uh, let my people go, and he explicitly says Nadell and Sharansky, and so many more. In other words, there's a, you know a explicit uh, political statements in Jewish songs, and of course, uh, Mordechai ben David also had on on uh, Jerusalem is not for sale, a later album about, about the Mormon uh, building on Harazesim. Um, um, uh, remember, the lyric was. Um, Go back to Utah overnight before the mountaintop open wide and swallows you inside, something like that, um, and many more. So political statements in, it comes to Jewish music as well. So that's an interesting development uh, from a historical uh, perspective. Uh, also, that uh, it takes in current events at the time. One of the greatest um, uh, products of Jewish music starts in the 60s, really starts much earlier, so you don't, it doesn't become famous until the 1960s, is Joe Amar. Joe Amar grows up in Morocco. In the 1950s, he's in his 20s, he's already a chazan in Morocco, a prominent chazan in Morocco, so his career starts in Morocco in the 1950s. I don't know if we have recordings of his uh, at that time. And he moves to Israel in 1956. Moroccan Jewry is slowly shifting towards France and Israel, and to a lesser extent also to Canada, to Montreal, and uh, he moves to Israel, and he's a pioneer in the popularization of Moroccan Jewish music. And some of his famous songs, Barcelona, Shalom Levendodi, and others. Um, and he doesn't quite make it in, uh, he mentors some of the next generation Moroccan singers like Zohar Argov and others in Israel, but he himself at that early stage doesn't quite make it in Israel, and he, he comes to tour in the United States. In 1965, he performs at Carnegie Hall, and he later moves to New York City. And he later, later to Los Angeles, and he, later years he moves back to Israel. His family was there. Um, he's honored in his later years in Israel as, as one of the pioneers of Moroccan Jewish music. But he um, is, has a very important place in the history of Jewish music because until Joe Omar, Jewish music in the religious uh, um, New Yorkish world for sure. Uh, Jewish music, religious Jewish music, was considered either Hasidic or Cantorial, and here he brings the um, brings the world of Sephardic Jewish music up to the forefront. Another um, Israel sourced music at that time, also in the sixties, is Chaim Banet, who's still around, still composing, still very active. Born in Romania to a Hasidic family, and as a baby, his parents attempted to illegally come to Palestine, and they're sent by the British to the to the internment camps in Cyprus, where he is as a young uh, child. 
and he eventually uh, moves to Israel, and he, the, he joins the Seret Vizhnitz uh, Hasidus in Haifa, and he serves in the artillery uh, uh, unit in the Israeli army, and he runs the Tseire Agudis Yisrael Boys Choir, and he works together at the time with another young aspiring uh, Israeli in the uh, in the Israel Israel music scene, Mona Rosenblum, who we'll get to also. So Chaim Benet, uh, among his many many albums and compositions, so one of his most famous songs, Machnise Rachamim, which is his composition, it might be one of the greatest songs of the modern era of Jewish music. Um, so that's Chaim Benet. Um, once we're talking about the 60s, um, and we're going to go into this transition into the 70s in a minute, so I just want to, um, to, to speak for a couple of minutes about producers, composers, arrangers, and conductors. Um, before we get back to some of the performers. So you have already in the 60s, Shia Mendlowitz, um, he starts his illustrious career as a producer with arranging Karlbach, Shlomo Karlbach concerts. And then at that time, you also have Suki Berry, though, and Achman Golding, make Suki and Ding. They become literally the architects in the production of Jewish music. Later on, also Uncle Maishi, which is a different genre, but almost uh, everything back in the day. In Israel, you have Moshe Laufer, who really only becomes a major uh, producer in the 1980s, but he starts off earlier. He's Belgian originally, grows up in Tel Aviv, and then he rises as a producer and a composer. And then, of course, like I mentioned earlier, Yisrael Lamb. Now, aside from his music talent and a conductor and a Gina orchestra and an arranger, the fact is that he is one of the first ones in the religious music scene who got a serious music education. Didn't rely just on raw talent and practice, but uh, actually got out and got a music as- education, which raised the entire industry to a new level. Um, you know what a little education could do for people, you know. Uh, the sound became different, the arrangements became different. Um, and then in Israel you have um, Mona Rosenblum, um, who who went to school with Dudu Fisher, by the way, which hopefully I'll get to also. And he, he starts off as Dati Lumi, National Religious. And he begins composing in the 1970s. So at the end of the 1980s, he shifted to the right, and he becomes more uh, more more a part of the Haredi community in Israel. And he, he, he came from a Polish uh, Gera Hasidic family, and, and he also becomes one of the great uh, composers and producers in Jewish music. And of course, you have Yassi Green. Yassi Green, who grew up as a Satmar Chassid, born in B'nai Brak, then later on in Williamsburg, to be for his family. His father wanted to be near the Satmarov, and his father actually had been a rabbi in Romania. Um, and he himself learned in a yeshiva in England, and he started off as a young bacher in a yeshiva in England, composing for Yigal Salik in the London School of jo- Jewish Song before he goes on to become a prolific uh, composer. And if we go ahead a little bit to the future, before we jump back to the 70s, um, Nachum Siegel and his role. Uh, Nachum Siegel, his impact on promoting Jewish music through his radio show, the MC of many of the famous Jewish music concerts, he becomes, in a certain extent, the face of the modern Jewish music scene. And in this context, it's worth noting someone who's a little bit diff- different than you're talking about all the producers and the performers, but Velvel Pasternak, Velvel Pasternak was the most uh, preeminent historian of Jewish and Hasidic music, Israeli Jewish music, cantorial, Ladino Jewish music, which is often overlooked, Yiddish 
music, Holocaust music, which most people don't even know exists. You know, when I interviewed uh, survivors, so um, high priority was given uh, in, in the Yad Vashem instructions and in how to interview the survivors to request of the survivors to sing songs, both of pre-war songs that they grew up with, um, shul songs, Shabbos mirrors, lullabies, school songs, camp songs, and also of any songs that they remembered that were sung in the ghetto or even uh, on more rare occasions in, in the camps. Um, so in general, it's just uh, it's good to know. It's it's part of part of our history as well. So Velvet Pasternak wrote uh, Jewish music, wrote books about it. He was a historian of uh, Jewish music. He used to lecture on the topic. He just passed away recently, and that's another uh, angle of the story. So the field diversifies. We come to the 1970, and where there's a diversification of the Jewish music field, diaspora yeshiva bands becomes the major story of the 1970s. Avram Rosenblum, Ben Sion Solomon, Ruby Harris, Menachem Herbin, who lives right near me in Beit Shemesh, Simcha Abramson, Gedalia Goldstein, Adam Wexler, and others. Chaim David even started off in, in Diaspora. Diaspora Yeshiva was the first Kirov Yeshiva, founded by Mordechai Goldstein, who was actually friends with Shlomo Karlbach. Um, and it was started on Mount Zion, Hart Zion, right outside the old city, which some people uh, mistakenly believe is where David Amelch's kever is. So the Balchuva movement is in its heyday, and the band begins in Nachlaot neighborhood in Yerushalayim in 1975, and they used to have these legendary Maitzi Shabbos concerts, Malava Malka's Kumzitzin, on Hartzion in the 1970s. It brought new styles in Jewish music. In, in a certain way, they were unabashedly borrowing from the contemporary non-Jewish scene and giving it Jewish themes, and very influenced by the rock and roll uh, of the of the styles of the 1970s. In fact, they themselves, the band members, were connected to the contemporary rock and roll scene and their personalities. They used to host them on their visits to Israel, and uh, one or two of them, I think, even actually spent some time in diaspora yeshiva. Um, diaspora has a diaspora yeshiva band has an influence on the Jewish music till today through many offshoots, uh, Moshav band and uh, several other bands. Um, that are in the contemporary Jewish music scene. The other product of the 1970s is the Miami Boys Choir, through Rachmiel Begun. We did discuss the history of Miami Boys Choir and Rachmiel Begun on our Cities series episode of Miami. So you'll just want to check out um, our Miami episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, and uh, and that and then you'll and that's all about the how it started in Miami in the 1970s and how it was brought uh, up north to New York. Um, and those early albums. Another um, Israeli to America, Israel to America story of the 1970s is Dudu Fisher, um, who starts off as a chazan in, in the Tel Aviv Great Synagogue. Um, but he expands, and he moves to the United States. He also performs on Broadway. He's the first person to have Shabbos observance in his Broadway contract, that he doesn't have to come to practice, to, to theatrical uh, you know, rehearsals and stuff like that on Shabbos. He brings Hasidic-style music he brought to to new audiences. He sang lots of Yiddish songs. He participated every year in what was the then Hasidic Music Festival, which doesn't exist anymore in, in Israel. In the army, when he served in the Israeli army, he was in the Rabbanut uh, Army Official Tzahal Choir. And he brought and he brought uh, Yiddish music and Hasidic music to the wider world. And he, um, again, still performing today, but 
someone who, who brought a whole new angle to, uh, to Jewish music at the time. And then, of course, in the 70s, you also have the beginning of the illustrious career of A.B. Rottenberg. Um, in the 1970s, it was Dveikis, together with really Label Sharfman, who was originally from the Rabbi's Sons, and Yassi Sonnenblick, and Eli Kranzler, and Rivi Schwebel. Um, so that was the Dveikis era. In the 1980s, it was Journeys, um, his Journey songs, which made, brought English songs to a new level, in a certain way a pioneer of the English song genre. And then in the 90s, it was Leif and Nefesh and Aish and lots more, multi-talented and, and, and uh, a huge impact on uh, Jewish music that can't be over-exaggerated. Uh, and then, of course, in the 1970s, you have mentioned in Part 1, MBD. I'm sorry, in Part 1, I mentioned David Werdiger. So his son, Mordechai ben David, who uses his fa- capitalizes on his father's fame. So in 1973 is his first album, but a year later is his, more, is his first famous album, his first big hit, Hineni, in 1974. That's when his career begins. And he's later to become crowned as the king of Jewish music, and he was already a rising star in the 1970s. Um, there's definitely a lot to speak about him, but he's one of the more famous ones, and I like to focus on the less famous ones. Another a uh, 1970s uh, beginning is of the Piamenta brothers, Yassi and Avi Piamenta, who grew up in Tel Aviv, Israelis, and they're also the ones who make the transition from Israel to America. Um, also, um, you know, came from a religious home, but drew, was drawn closer to religious Jewish life later on. They popularize, uh, Yassi Piamenta popularizes the electric guitar in Jewish music and Hasidic music, brings again a new music style. I remember when I was a child, I was by a friend's bar mitzvah in Muncie in the 90s, and I went to one of the bar mitzvah, this, this particular bar mitzvah, he was, um, it was Yossi Piamenta, and Matt Hill was on the drums, and I don't remember any of the food at the bar mitzvah, which is, you know, kind of unique. I usually, that was the main thing I remembered. I don't remember even if I said mazel tov to my friend. I just remember being mesmerized, just sitting there in front of Yossi Piamenta and Matt Hill, and it was the music was just completely different than than anything else you heard live in those days at a average uh, bar mitzvah. Um, someone else from the nineteen seventies was Moshe Yes, who grew up uh, not religious, so he starts off in non Jewish music in the nineteen sixties, but then he transitions with uh, his his path towards Lubavitch, towards Chabad, um, into religious Jewish music in 1980. He puts out Megama, which became a classic in Jewish music. The 1970s also saw the birth of Nagino Orchestra, Shelley Lang. It's interesting, in the 1960s, you saw music groups, bands, uh, diasporas, I mentioned, and the Rabbi's Sons earlier. And then it transitions into singers, performers, and orchestras. I don't know if that's an interesting historical trend. I don't know if there's what to say about that. And and, and if that developed, and there's you know anom- anomalies and exceptions either way. But the Nagino Orchestra is becomes uh becomes the the a new thing, the the orchestra, the band of of uh um to play for concerts, weddings, albums, um, and that becomes a fixture on the Jewish music scene as well. Another um, 19, late 1970s uh, production is the Amude Sheish Boys Choir, um, and and also um, the Schwebel Scharf and Levine group put out four albums. 
Um, Ali Sharf actually sang on both uh, Amudei Sheish, I think Rivi Shwebel as well, and 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 then with the Shwebel Sharf and Levine group after having previously been primarily a composer. So he realizes Ali Sharf that he could also be a singer, and the uh, and he started composing as a child, and then he realized only as an adult that he could be a singer as well. Um, inspired by music greats like A.B. Rottenberg and Baruch Chait. So they they go along, Rivi uh, Schwebel and Ali Scharf, and they go on to become uh, singers as well. So that brings us kind of a close to the 1970s. Um, and part three, I guess, will have to be on the 1980s, bringing us all the way up to the uh, contemporary music scene of Eighth Day and anyone else who's on the contemporary music scene. Um, so that will have to wait for a part three. So be in touch with me about sponsorships for that. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, lectures, sponsorships, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.